Brewery DB and Good Beer Matters have partnered to share the education and stories of craft and culture found in every glass. Brewery DB is the largest curated source of brewery knowledge and serves to connect craft beer lovers like yourself to your next brewery experience. Expand your knowledge of brews and create personalized brewery routes in your own neighborhood and nationwide. Visit brewerydb.com today and be the first to explore this all-new experience. My name is Jeremy, and this is Good Beer Matters. Well, shoot, I mean, I mean to go all the way back, originally I was gonna kind of copy Orval in a way and just make one beer a mantra of my whole brewery, right? Is like art over industry. I'm trying to get this down to the core, right? And with the least amount of processing, because I feel that that is going to allow each one of these ingredients that we use to have their fullest expression. There's a place high up in the solitude of the Cascade Mountains where one can find equal parts myth, magic, art, and science. And if you're lucky, you can take a bottle of it home with you. My next guest is the apothecary of such brews, and he shares his process of putting it all together. I've studied, traveled, and tasted my way through some of the best beer the world has to offer. Over the past few years, I've also spoken to beer industry leaders from around the globe, and one thing is certain, the art, the science, and the culture of beer has more of a profound effect on us than we realize. There's a story of craft and culture found in every glass, and I intend to get to the bottom of it. These are the stories of us, of great food and the beer that brings it all together. I hope you enjoy episode 103 of Good Beer Matters with Paul Arney, the Ale Apothecary. Well, today we get to take all of the discussion that we've done in the previous podcast about ingredients, about about malt, hops, yeast, and water, and we're going to start putting it together, but in a very interesting way, and I can't think of anyone better to talk about the art and the science and the myth and the magic of putting all this stuff together than, than uh, Paul Arney, uh, who hails from uh, my old uh, neck of the woods. Paul, thank you so much for coming on to the Good Beer Matters podcast. Oh, that's great to be here, Jeremy. Thank you. Um, I, I have been uh, looking forward to uh, picking your brain uh, for years now. Um, of course, I had the opportunity to uh, um, meet with you in, in a class and visit your brewery on a couple different occasions. Uh, I was part of uh, Dr. Bill's uh, final class at the college, but um, but uh, but I've never had a chance to really carve out why you are doing what you are doing. Um, and so hopefully we can uh, carve that out today. Cause yeah, maybe it'll help me get to the bottom of it too. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate that. But, but to kick things off, who are you and what is your background in beer? Um, yeah. So yeah, my name is Paul Arney. I'm the, um, owner operator of the Ale Apothecary. Um, I've really only known brewing as, um, a professional career. I, I never, I mean, it's the only thing, uh, you know, out, out of college, um, I fell into, um, to, into brewing, um, uh, just kind of met this local brewer in my town and kind of started sailing around and, um, just 
kind of reminded me of when I was younger. Cause I, I used to be with my dad before I was 21 and, um, I didn't really have any plans coming out of college. And so this, uh, this kind of gave me a path, like, you know, something that I enjoyed and I appreciated it had this history element that I really liked. Um, and so I, I just kind of started pursuing, um, making it, uh, my career. And it, uh, I had some really lucky, um, and fortunate turns. I mean, I think at that time, um, the industry was a lot smaller and it was easier for me to get my foot in the door. And, you know, I was able to, um, get into, uh, the UC Davis master brewers program and out of there, I, I got a job at Deschutes brewery, which, um, being from the Northwest was always like, uh, it was this place that, uh, we would go and, and always had a great time and we enjoyed bend. And it was just this, it was this really good timing. I'd, I'd gotten married and uh, moved down to Bend within two weeks of each other and um, spent the better part of 15 years in total at, at Deschutes and got to see this company that was, uh, you know, and still is very iconic and um, from a certain stage and, and progressed through a lot of growth with three different brew houses and lots of different, you know, brewing experiences. And, and I think, um, you know, once I started my own thing, um, the stuff that I, I wasn't aware of at the time while working at that company, uh, that helped me out were all these non-brewing elements, right? Like being part of a, uh, a, a, a company that had a, a brew pub operation, um, and then a production brewery operation with, uh, different brew houses and then the ins and outs of how, how they just work, um, you know, in the, to get beer, not just made, but, uh, produced and into the hands and the mouths and the stomachs of their customers. Right. Like, um, as I was starting the yellow apothecary. And so like in 2011, I started the yellow apothecary and I had, um, all sorts of, of, um, things that I, I wanted to do. I had all sorts of things that I didn't want to do and was really focused on, um, the experience and kind of this concept and, um, you know, making this beer and, and all that. But once I started getting into the the business elements, which I had zero experience, um, being able to lean on these, uh, almost kind of subconscious things that I had been doing at Deschutes or had witnessed at Deschutes, um, regarding shipping or, um, you know, inventory and all these kind of like stuff that, that aren't very exciting. Um, they, it really came in handy. So when I, um, when I was developing, um, my business, I didn't really have much of a plan. Um, but one of the main components was that I wanted to keep it as small as possible. Um, and I think this bigger knowledge of how the beer industry works and how, how things move and, and, and what you need and, uh, all those kind of gears and stuff that I, I really wasn't focused on um, ended up becoming incredibly valuable uh, because I didn't have to just jump into this trust of like in another um, organization or our um, outside contractor or whatever to be like, Oh, you know, I, I need to have um, a tap room and I need to have, uh, you know, serving tanks and a glycol chiller and I need to have, you know, a distributor and, and keg beer to go to draft, you know, like I was able to envision, um, my little niche within the inner workings of this industry. Um, 
it just, it just is uh, in hindsight, it's becoming more and more prevalent, like because we are, um, you know, we're 11 years in now. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've been able to keep, um, keep it really, really small. I mean, I think we brewed 250 barrels last year and um, it's, it's great. Which it's I, just the, I, I find that fascinating because I am aware that you are sending your beer around the world. I mean, you, you are selling it in other countries and there are, you know, there are, there are breweries brewing mainstream hazies and IPAs and stouts and porters that don't get out of their state. But here you are just brewing a few hundred barrels a year, but you're selling it in, in different countries. I mean, how, how does that, how does that, um, define you and, and your definition of small? Well, uh, well, it's, it definitely helps define the, the meaning of niche, you know, like, um, I think if, um, if I was able to sell all this beer, um, you know, out the door, uh, of our tasting room, you know, that would obviously be a better business model. Sure. Um, or I shouldn't say bu better business model. I should say the revenue would be high. I can't yeah. say that, you know, that I don't <laughs> not experiencing it and, and seeing what people have to deal with, with that kind of stuff. But, it, um, the margin you know, sure would it, be better. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a good way to say it. Um, I think it's, it's, this. uh, it's on one hand, you know, I, 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 we can say these things like, yes, I, I'm able to ship the beer around the world and there's, there's a market for it and it sounds grand. And I'm, I, I think it is, it's amazing. I think the way that the beer um, culture has transitioned and is, is global now is phenomenal. And I, I just love to be a part of it. Um, but the flip side of that is the fact that, you know, like, the beer that we produce, the beer that I've chosen to make, um, is, is niche. It's not for everybody. And the price point's high enough where it's just not something that's, a, um, you know, it's, it's not like going and buying a six pack of free Pilsner every other week or whatever you do, you know, like it's, um, so there's, it's, it's kind of like, uh, it's, it's a push and pull, right? It's like, uh, I'm, I'm fortunate that I was in the industry early enough. I feel like we've got this really solid product. I'm super proud of with a story. And, uh, that translates to, um, to being able to make these sales, uh, in far flung places of the world and people that appreciate it. And I'm, I'm super grateful for that, but I do have my eye on this because it's like, that's also a component of, of being small, like my, my scalability with what we're doing right now. Um, I, I don't think I'd, I'd be, you know, like, even if somebody was like, here, I, I've got some funds and, you know, no strings attached. You can, you can grow the brewery to, to the biggest size you want. Like, um, I really don't think me pushing the, the, the gas pedal down would, would be beneficial for, uh, for my business. Well, and, and with the nature, which in just a second, I want you to describe the type of beers you're creating, but the nature of the beers that you make, they're not conducive for let's, let's pump these out the door every two weeks, uh, for ales and, and, and cut some corners and punch them out the door every, uh, three to four weeks for loggers. I mean, that the type of stuff you're producing is not going to, uh, allow you to cut any of those corners, right? It's, it's very true. Yeah. And, and the way that you put that is actually, um, very accurate because when I, when I did start this business, um, there were so many things that I didn't want to do. Like, in fact, a lot of my, like, I, I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do, um, specifically regarding the beer. Um, I had like, you know, I had, you know, this history component and this, you know, the manual labor component and this house character component and, and all these things that I wanted to implement. But, um, there were specifics regarding things I didn't want to do because, you know, the way that I saw it, like if I really wanted to 
invest myself in what I find to be um, art and culture uh, surrounding beer itself and this wonderful history that we've got. The best way that I could do that is to um, is to focus on those things and not get sidetracked with, um, you know, quick turnaround beers that uh, have a short shelf life and need to be brought to uh, the draft handle um, because, you know, that whole component uh, requires a certain amount of infrastructure and a certain amount of size that uh, would distract me from really what I wanted to focus on. So, um, yeah, so these beers that I, that, that we, that's why, you know, we only make, uh, you know, wild and spontaneous beers. Um, it's, it's a way that, uh, I can, um, it's not necessarily standing for something because I appreciate industrial beers and I drink them all the time. Um, but it is a way for me to preserve this little, um, you know, kind of art project that I've created where I can focus on what I, um, treasure most about the the beer industry, right? It's like, uh, you know, the fact that we have this completely natural process that uh, um, we can influence in so many different ways. Like, we, we, I know we're going to be talking about ingredients, but one of the things that keeps going through my mind is how I've said on so many occasions when trying to describe what we do is that our process is an ingredient, right? Like our, our house character is built in in a way and our brew house is unique enough in a way and a beer moves through it in its own particular manner that the impact on that that final product um, is equal to, and in maybe some cases even more so than the raw materials that we're putting into it. Yeah, and well, and and and, and honestly, whenever you know I see those uh, commercials on TV that talk about we brew the hard way, you know, type of the, you know that whole thing, right? <laughs> it's just like right. man, man, you guys haven't met Paul, have you? <laughs> <'Cause>... <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, and that was. You know, that's so funny because when I first started off, I, I really thought that by simplifying things in the brewery, I was going to make life easier for me. You know, like, see, it's these lessons that you learn. But no, I, yeah, we, it's, um, it isn't easy. And it's, uh, it's, um, it is a lot of labor. And like you were getting at before that it, it takes us about, you know, for if we just took an average one of our beers, you know, a typical, um, typical show, uh, process time it's it's about two years you know it's a you know it's a year year ish plus in the barrel you know we've got a little bit of primary fermentation time and and uh, fooder time up front and then we've got um you know the uh the, the post barrel aging if we're going to be doing something and then now the time it spends in the bottle it's just like um yeah it it takes a while but um now that we're in kind of this rhythm and we have the size that we like um you know the the waiting isn't hard anymore because we always have inputs and outputs that we have available to us at any any particular time yeah but but that also means that you, you are by you know literally brewing the hard way you are doing the hard work you are you are creating something that is more special, has a higher price point because it's not your, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to pop this open on a Wednesday, but uh, but this is something that you're going to have to share to to cultivate that experience. But that I also imagine, um, and from just the conversations, uh, the short conversations I've had uh, with you in the uh, forever ago, um, it it sounds like you have a. Uh, and I'm going to get a little bit woo-woo right now, so forgive me, but you, you, <laughs> you, 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 almost, you almost have like a relationship 
with the different ingredients. You don't just you don't just like have the you know the the Brees malt truck just kind of show up and say how many bags do you want, Paul? You, I mean you're 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 coming up with you're going out there to find the best. You you want to know these ingredients intimately so that you can create something better. Do I have this correct? Human beings have used the power of storytelling for millennia. We use stories to educate, motivate, and inspire others to lead better lives. If you're a business in the beer industry, we can use the power of story to better serve your customers. At Mountain Sea Media, I help you tell your story and keep your brand on top of mind. Mountain Sea Media is your resource for engaging multimedia beer content. Contact me at jeremy at mountainseamedia.com to discuss your next project. After all, it's your story. I'll help you tell it. Um, yeah, I mean, more or less. I mean, I think the way that I would probably phrase it, because it's um, it's the, you know, like, I'm seeing a lot. Yeah, I shouldn't say I'm seeing a lot. It, this isn't happening a lot. But there, there's, you know... Um, let me collect my thoughts here for a minute. Um, what I wanted to say is uh, the idea that I can start uh, from scratch, I think is just like the, the idea of cooking from scratch or like the, uh, it, you know, when the, wow, I'm kind of chasing this thought and I haven't got it exactly, but my, my goal with the raw materials is that, uh, if I can reduce uh, the amount of processing, right? This is kind of a, the um, a mantra of my whole brewery, right? Is like um, I have this uh, phrase that I put on our bottles, and that it, it is that's like that's a, one thing that um, I've shared with people to kind of help understand who we are. It's this art over industry. Is it like if I get to a point where I'm trying to make a decision based on um, something, it's like if I can come back to this art over industry, and it's not that I. Um, am choosing art over the industry that you and I were chatting about earlier, this personal, uh, you know, the beer industry is this cultural place. It's I'm choosing, um, the path of art over the, the mechanization and, uh, the, um, the processing element that is prevalent in, you know, in the biggest picture in, in most all the food that we consume, you know, stuff that we don't see. Right. And so and that's not necessarily something I was um, I think initially maybe it was some I would hope that uh, our customers kind of like people would be aware of kind of like I know in the food movement, um, it seems that uh, people are really um, uh, finding out where their food comes from and, and very invested in in making choices based on that, where that hasn't translated as well in the brewing industry. But it's it's important enough for me where um when it comes to decisions like raw materials, uh, I want to get you know the closest I can to what this um, ingredient was um, when it was produced by the non-human element or whatever, right? So like you know the hops we're using whole cone hops and and uh, the barley's uh, that Seth's growing over there are unique to uh, to this area and the way that he produces them, um, and then using honey as the bottle conditioning thing. It's like uh, I'm trying to get this down to the uh, the uh, the core right and with the least amount of processing because i feel that that is going to allow each one of these ingredients that we use to have their fullest expression um and so while in one sense of the word you could say i am out there in search of the best um i mean i am limiting myself to looking within oregon because i think we can provide all that here 
And then yeah, I'm absolutely. also I'm also investing a lot of trust in um, the people that know um, you know these crops or these products, right? Like I um, I appreciate uh, the breweries that are are building um, their their farmhouse breweries and then you know doing everything, you know, growing the malt, uh, growing a malt in the barley or growing their hops and trying to get the fruit going. Um, for myself, what I can say is I feel like I understand beer. Um, and while I think I could make a pass at maybe malting some barley sometime, it's just not, that is not my skill set. And so to have like, uh, nearby a, a farmer who is as, um, interested in developing, uh, his, uh, you know, his crop into something that's unique, representative of his area, do the, do the best thing that he can for that barley malt or the wheat malt. Um, I just feel extremely fortunate, you know, to have Seth Klon around. Um, and same thing with Gail over there, you know, like we buy, <laughs> we buy one bale of hops every year, you know, and it's like, I, uh, I used to go to, um, the, uh, when I worked at the shoots, I would go on the hop selection, uh, trip, which is always fun. You know, you go and um, then these hop companies would, uh, the hop brokers would, um, share all these different, uh, um, uh, versions of the same hop, you know, and they'd all have different attributes and we would, uh, choose accordingly because, you know, in the bigger industry, you're trying to produce a consistent product and all that. Well, for me, I'm more interested in kind of like the, this whole concept with wine and how you have these different vintages and, um, these unknowns that can pop up. That's like a huge part of this. And so with Gail, um, I let her choose the uh, uh, which bale of hops I'm going to get every year. Um, we only really use Cascades, and we age and um, we age some of them, and then we use some of them that are fresh for for dry hopping and stuff. But as far as like which um, which bale we get, which uh, which um, from which field, um, I let Gail do that because you know she's gonna she's going to ultimately know what she thinks is turning out the best and, and, um, and knowing what you're going to do with them. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? And, so. and part of me, that's, that's part of the, the excitement as well. Right. Like I, um, I, I like to have a certain amount of control. I mean, I just to be, you know, like I, I, I am a bit of a control freak, but, um, I really enjoy not having, um, the, the desired outcome, in place when I start, right? Like, I think that's one reason we try not to, uh, uh, we try to avoid blending. It's just, you know, that, uh, I'm trying to just, um, massage and, and, uh, help this process along in this place with this idea that it's going to reach somewhere that I haven't been before, you know? And so that always gets a little, you know, like, I mean, like you say, a little woo woo, I get to get a little woo woo, but having, having partners that I trust, with these raw materials is huge. Well, and you, you kind of describe your process, you know, as you're describing that, I'm thinking about the slow food movement. I'm imagining you as being kind of the, um, like a, a, like a really, uh, an, uh, an excellent chef will go to a farmer's market and pick out the ingredients that he or she wants to use, um, for the, the, a special dish that they're creating that evening. Um, and just kind of seeing, okay, what what is available? What's fresh? Um, oh, there's some uh, a great bok choy. Okay, I'll take um, uh, I'll take a, a couple of those big bundles, and we're going to do something with bok choy tonight. You know, something like that. Where where the way you describe it, it's almost like you're part of this unofficial slow brewing movement, where where you are trying to um, uh, uh, you know control your part of it. But granted, we all know that brewers 
are the ones who just create this environment and then let the yeast kind of do their thing. But you're trying to create this um, environment to to get ultimately what is going to not not what necessarily i'm not hearing you say i want to get this specific beer out of it i'm hearing you say i want to i want to create this environment and see what um what is kind of given to me what what my relationship with the yeast is giving to me yeah so no 100 100 percent. hit it on the hit it on the head there well then um so let's talk about these ingredients that you have that you have access to i mean granted um your your home your brewery is in you know beautiful uh, spot up in the uh, cascade mountains um uh tell me about the the water that you have access to that you're brewing with yeah sure um so it's um you know, we have a well, um, and the water that's coming out of the well is, uh, I mean, we run it through a, um, like a sock filter, you know, but that's the only treatment we have to do. It's very soft, you know, it's basically snow melt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that presents, um, uh, certain challenges, but also, uh, you know, the, the old adage about, you know, starting with good water, um, it's, it's almost impossible to make bad beer, (laughs) you know, like, uh, that's one of the reasons I give when people are like, why are there so many breweries in Bend? You know, I mean, there's all these, um, physical reasons, like, uh, the fact that, you know, we've got great, um, tourism opportunities and all that kind of stuff. But, um, I think the reason that we've had so many successful breweries, uh, one, one component of that is the water here is, it's just so dang good. Um, but you know to compare a little bit with with say uh town water right so um and this this definitely gets uh, a little into that woo-woo space is like here our water is coming out of the ground um it doesn't get chlorinated and then run through uh, a carbon filter and through uh through the series of pumps and valves and um, pipes uh that uh, you have to get in town um where here it's just you know it's basically just coming right out of the ground and we're we're using it and um oddly enough the 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 waters do taste different uh i you know we we've done little tests because we have our barrel cellar is is in town um and so we've got our own little carbon filter set up for for a steam generator and and for the tanks and stuff that we have to clean them um but there is there is a significant difference, and I you know I chalk that up to this this um, kind of the nebulous term of of processing. Um, it just this water's been uh, been moved around and and you know um, chemicalized, and then the chemicals removed, and and that that has effects. And so um, kind of like I was telling you about with the other stuff, the 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 least least amount of that I can get into the beer, the better. Yeah. And, and, and so, I mean, you're, you're taking underground water that has probably been underground, uh, are we guessing thousand years, a hundred years? I mean, yeah, you know, what's, what's I, I wanted, that? well, up by the falls here. So about three, three miles up from our house, there's an interpretive sign by the falls that, that says, uh, the water was, has been underground for 11,000 years. And so like, I, you know, I, I don't know, like, um, I'd like to get some more hard facts on that because that seems a little, that seems like a little long, but I, that's, that's what the sign says. Um, well, and, I, and, uh, and, uh, and even if that's not true, I mean, we're really talking about rain and snow melt that's going underground and being held there for you to pull up and turn into beer, which, um, you know, we can talk about 
pH. We can talk about um, chlorides and we can talk about alkalinity and and you can have all this conversation, but but there is a little we don't have to go to the technical to understand that this is a really good, especially if it's soft water, you can add stuff to it if you were so inclined. It just totally it, and I'm, yep. it, it gives you an absolutely wonderful, perfect blank canvas upon which to paint your beer flavor on. Yes, it really does. I mean, yeah, the mineral content's really low. And um, I think that's, you know, I've, <laughs> in an alternative reality, I think Ben could have been an amazing logger town. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, once upon a time. Um, <laughs> right. Um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah I'll, I'll skip that comment. I was going to say, well, it now, now it takes all those uh, 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 logging buildings and makes them to a wonderful strip mall. But, um, you know, that that's a different conversation altogether. Um <laughs> So th- that's the water that you, that you are working with. I mean, you, you're you're dealing with. I mean, you know, straight from nature, very little, very little um, uh, effects from human involvement. But uh, tell me about the malt that you work with. Yeah. So um, initially, when um, I got the the brewery going, you know, the goal was to source ingredients. Um, in you know all from oregon and at the time you know the hops was uh, was a no-brainer um you know the malt was a, at that time was um limited to i mean i knew that great western had an organic um barley field or two in oregon and my my goal was to kind of see if i could get um get my hands on some of that but that kind of turned out to be um, a little more difficult than i had planned and um so i ended up just going with Brees. Um, for the first year because they were uh, the smallest and um, out of all the malt houses that I'd been to, they were, they had this very unique process and they're making the caramel malts. And I was just, you know, it was like, I was trying to get my business going. It's like, well, we're just going to go with Breeze for now. Um, and really like, I think it was probably less than a year in um, that first year, Seth uh, Klon came and visited me on a brew day with his dad and his cousin and told me that his plan, you know, they told me about their, their family farm up there that they've had forever. And, um, you know, he, here he was, you know, like in these, uh, in the traditional American fashion, right. Seth was getting old enough to take the reins over from his dad. And, um, that means that he gets to make all the decisions based on what's best for the family farm. And, uh, he'd been to, um, Oregon state's, uh, fermentation, uh, science program. And, um, his goal was to, uh, start producing, you know, brewing grade, uh, malted barley, um, that, he, that he grew himself, right. A state grown, uh, malted barley. And so here we were standing in my brew house and it was just like, this is amazing. Right. I, like I, this was like kind of this dream. And here all of a sudden these guys are standing around in cowboy boots and telling me about their farm up in Madras. And it's just like, Oh my God, this is like so fortunate. Right. It yeah. just was one of these things that fell into place. And so, um, Seth developed a, I think it was a 700 pound, um, little maltings that he, uh, he made himself. And so for prototypes and for development, um, I was the, the lucky, the lucky brewer who got all the malt that came off that little system. Mm. Um, and so that, that formed a, a great relationship and it's continued to this day. I mean, I, we virtually use all, um, mecha grade malt. Um, we do bring in, um, I, we bring in some Skagit malt once in a while. And, um, I'm still planning on trying to get my hands on some of Caleb's malt from Sugar Creek out in Indiana, just because he's doing some really cool stuff. But, um, you know, 
by large, um, you know, 98% of the malt that, that we're making our beers with uh, come from um, Seth's farm. And, uh, you know, I think the things that, that he's doing up there that align with uh, the way that I do things here is he wasn't going out trying to make um, a replica of Vireman Pilsner or, you know, like, uh, you know, and, um, you know, Baird's um, crystal malt or something like he, um, he wanted to make malt that would work for, for brewers, provide a very high quality product, but he also wanted it to represent um, where it came from, you know? So he is into the idea of trying to drive this terroir into his malt. Um, and so, and that also trans translates into the way that he um, malts his barley. So like he's got, um, uh, varieties and then his farming process, you know, and the way that it gets water and then the whole farming angle that's going to add, um, a, the unique, a unique character, um, to his barley, um, barley malt. But then when he, uh, gets it into the malt house, the, you know, he's got a, um, a, uh, mechanical floor malting mm-hmm. contraption that he invented one of a and kind. came up with himself. Yeah. yeah it's one just, of a kind so cool and like um hearing that it's just like oh my gosh like you know we're you know uh, a little bit of uh soulmates in that way like the 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 ultimate goal we were sharing some very uh key parts of each of our visions you know what i mean um and so it's it's been really awesome to have this relationship um where before, you know, being an industrial brewer, what I like to say, sometimes a catalog brewer where you're flipping through a catalog or now online and you're, you're ordering from, um, you know, brokers or middlemen and, um, to be able to have this connection with the farmer who's growing our, our barley and not only growing our barley, but malting it, um, is really exceptional, you know, like, um, Seth will deliver, uh, barley malt here once in a while and he'll show up in the truck and I'll get the fork, uh, forks on the tractor and get out there and we do a little bit of work together. And then I get to ask him about what's going on with the water and how's the farm looking. And, um, it just, uh, I don't know. It just feels, um, it feels right. It feels like, um, a good, uh, it just feels like a good thing to be doing, you know? Well, and, and I've, I've, um, been uh, lucky enough to interact with Seth uh, a number of times. Uh, he was a, a, a guest on this podcast uh, kind of way early on, um, episode 12, I think it was off the top of my head. But um, but what he's doing out there is exceptional. But w- what we're describing really, or what you're describing sounds like, you know, it, it's it's a really quaint notion to have a relationship with the people that you're working with and in this regard um and and that's all wonderful but you know you talk about those bigger commercial breweries down the hill and and you know they they need to cut costs and they need to make some money and then you know you kind of start having those conversations in that mindset it's like well at at why why would you get malt from someone like Seth and and we kind of dove into this in a recent episode talking about craft malt where yeah it, it might be it might be you know a tiny bit more expensive but the difference in flavor just I mean just tasting the malt um, I was up at his farm and we tasted a base malt that he produced and a base malt that you know a, a typical everyday craft brewer would get a hold of and it was the difference between an excellent award-winning craft beer and some no-name uh, mass-produced domestic that you, is just completely forgettable. It was, I, I was blown away and beyond impressed with just how much flavor is coming out of this craft malt, specifically at at uh, Seth's farm. And 
and, and you have to know that that is going to translate into your your beer. That is going to right. affect the end product, and that then that's what for me that quaint relationship is fantastic. Um, for that different mindset, you're just going to get a better product, so you can charge more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, the, the, the just to to be my own devil's advocate here, the 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 challenge um, arises right in in me being such a small producer that the amount of barley malt that I would need on an annual basis or the amount of hops that I would need on an annual basis aren't, <laughs> aren't significant enough to really make much of a difference in, um, you know, Gales or, or Seth's business, which, you know, it's like, it's just one of these things I've been holding and, and recognizing and observing and like, um, you know, cause I, I can't do anything different or I'm not going to, I'm, you know, but just recognizing that as this element to, um, you know, the bigger solution. If, if, if we were to do things differently as a society, you know, what does this look like? And, you know, because on one hand, we do need a way to produce, um, beer that is, is cheaper and, uh, you know, more, uh, more efficient. Um, but at the, I think where I lean is like, but how, how far do we need to go down there? How much profits do these companies, really need in sacrificing, you know, if they're going to say that we're, we're, you know, we're a craft brewery and we, um, we hold, you know, you know, we source the best ingredients and we make this best product. Um, and we're providing you this, uh, six pack for this, um, you know, post off price in the grocery store at this, um, how does that translate when you're not actually using, you know, local ingredients and, um, you know what I mean? It's just, yeah, it's, it's, but, every, it's, it's up to everybody who's participating in this, but just when I'm looking at it, like, I feel like, you know, one of the ways that, uh, I'm, you know, I need to use my voice more. I, cause I, I don't have a big enough, uh, uh, bank account or brewery to be writing, um, to be getting enough of, uh, my, my favorite suppliers products. Do you know sure. what I'm saying? Yeah. And you're, and, and you, you couldn't put out enough, um, everyday blonde ale type of thing to, to kind of make it all worthwhile. But you know, when we, when we talk about share of mouth or share of occasion, there are different mouths, there are different occasions. Um, you know, there's a reason why uh, I'm going to drive a GMC truck, but, uh, there's going to be a McLaren that drives past me. I mean, the, we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're two different, we're, we're two different product uh, end products um and and we i think people need to understand that we have that in the beer world i mean i'm sure you've heard this many many times but people say oh why why is beer getting so expensive why would i pay more than 12 dollars for a six-pack for for the same reason for the same reason you can have a vw and you can have a mercedes you can have a um and you can have a mclaren Uh, there's because they're a different occasion. They're a different person. They speak to different things, and 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 keeping that all in mind. This to me, that's why someone would want to get better malt, use better water, create something better. Because you're, you're not gonna you're not gonna compete with the uh, blonde six packs on on a Wednesday, like I said before. Right. Yep. Exactly. No, I think you got it. Got it. I totally agree with you on that. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry for going on my tirade. You're the guest. I'm trying to oh, get no. you to talk, but no, you're doing great. I think that's awesome. You got to have all our perspectives in here. Right. Um, I, I, obviously, I'm very uh, passionate about this as well. But um, so you mentioned uh, hops. You mentioned Gail. I'm assuming Gail Goshi. 
Mm-hmm. Um, uh, tell me about uh, we we kind of covered that a little bit, but and and you're using primarily cascades. That are you aging them yourself? Yeah, yep. Uh, we, we aging them ourselves. Uh, we you know we have some. I, I have a few beers, two beers, three beers that um, the Sahelian and the Latage. We go on to. Um, you know, last year's the most recent hop crop, you know, for, for the aromatics in the dry hopping. Um, but a lot of the, uh, um, and then we have some other ones that we will use, uh, I think the Carpe Diem and is all, uh, last year's hop crop, but like for our spontaneous beers, um, we'll be using the aged version of the cascades. Um, you know, and the reason I chose cascades originally, originally was, um, you know, it was developed in Oregon. It kind of gets back to this idea of Oregon, you know, like it was uh, one, one of the hops that uh, kind of the hop that kind of kickstarted the, uh, the craft brewing revolution and developed in Oregon. And it just had this kind of like special place. It's kind of, it was, to me, it was kind of like the Northwest version of the Czech sops. Yeah. Um, you know, it was like that hop that you could use for anything. Um, and so it, it re- represented a lot of, uh, um, a lot of this culture element, I guess I'm trying to get at. Um, and plus, since you know, I knew that the, you know, these beers that we were making weren't really, well, they're not, they're not hop dominated. They're not hop forward in any way. Um, it didn't matter as much, right? Like the, the distinctions between our beers isn't coming from the different hop varieties we use. Yeah. Um, and then also being a super small producer and not really being able to manage uh, cold storage in a very good way. It just was like, if I can simplify um, the hop thing, uh, that would be best. And so it's just like, well, I'm just going to, well, shoot. I mean, I mean, to go all the way back, originally I was going to kind of copy Orval in a way and just make one beer. It was going to be Sahele, it was going to be one beer, and that was all I was going to do because it's like that just minimizes all these other problems. But that that proved to be an impossibility. But um, sticking with it. Not in this day and age. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, but, uh, I have been able to stick primarily with, uh, with cascades. I mean, we do bring up in other hops for, for certain projects, but having a, um, you know, the, the age version versus the, uh, you know, the fresh, you know, I say fresh, but I don't mean like wet hops, the fresh version, yeah. um, give, give us enough, um, diversity and, and what we're, what we're needing. Well, then I, I think we really to, uh, to to really talk about the ale apothecary and the beers that you produce, we really need to talk about the yeast and the bacteria and your uh, your spontaneous fermentation on that unique site that you have. Um, t- tell me about the relationship you have with with that aspect of your of your production. Uh, yeah, I mean it's um, it's a lot. Uh, I, I understand it quite a bit more now than I used to, um, which, which is great because those early years, um, when, when I was trying to get the business off the ground and, um, we were really tight on money that, that added this level of stress that was, uh, (laughs) you know, it's just like hoping things would ferment out or hoping that, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the bottle conditioning would take and, um, not really understanding, you know, like, um, there's just been so many things that I've learned from making beer here in this way that I couldn't have learned any other way that, um, being in it now, you know, we're in our 11th year. It's, uh, I'm, I'm realizing how much more peace I am in my day to day because, um, we've got our processes down and we understand, um, 
to a certain degree, the natural, the natural components that we're working with. Um, you know, and so I guess specifically to talk about yeast, um, we're still, you know, we're always doing things, um, to kind of experiment what is going to be the best for our beer and what seems to be working best for our yeast. Um, you know, for, uh, we have a few strains banked at Imperial. Um, if in case stuff goes really, really bad, I could, you know, they they banked a few of our wild Saccharomyces strains. Mm. Um, we can uh, we can call in a, and get a blend of that uh, built up for us. But for me, the what what we really enjoy doing is. Um, you know, we do a combination of spontaneous and then what we kind of call our hybrid fermentations where, um, you know, spontaneous beers will, uh, will cool ship them and leave them out overnight and, um, generally rack them into barrels and, you know, fermentation will start up pretty often, uh, within a week. Um, and so, and that element we're getting yeast from, uh, the atmosphere, you know, and then we're also getting yeast from within these barrels. Um, and then, you know, there's other times when we'll, uh, after an exceptionally good beer uh, comes out of a barrel in the cellar, we'll, um, we'll capture the lees out of the, uh, out of the barrel and, um, put them in a carboy and feed it and get, get the yeast active again. And, you know, some of this yeast is, can be in there for, you know, a year, year and a half. Um, and so generally getting that going again is, is fairly slow, but, um, we've had really good success where we, we, we build up this carboy and get it into a nice, healthy fermentation. We do it, we do a brew and instead of cool shipping it, we run it into our fooder with, uh, with this carboy of yeast that we grew up from our barrel. Um, and you know, I'm not exactly sure what yeast that is, right? That's, um, it's possible that it may be one of these three strains that we have banked, but I kind of doubt it. You know, I just, um, there's just a lot of microorganisms, um, uh, around and we, we use, uh, you know, a lot of different barrels we will reuse barrels. And so, um, that's also kind of to give back to what we originally talked about. One of the this brewery is built around this idea of creating wild beer. So like if you said, Hey Paul, you know, I know you don't do this, but heck I'm having a wedding. Why don't you make me this nice <laughs> clean blonde ale? I'd be like, that's almost impossible. I, you know, that would be a, that'd be a big challenge to try and make a, a quote unquote clean beer up here. So, um, there's just a lot of micro, uh, micrological action out there, microbiological action out there. Um, and we're, you know, we're always investigating and trying new things and trying to make do with what, what we have, right? Like, um, I think that it's nice to know that we have yeast banked, but, uh, I get a better sense of my, sense of a brewer or my skill as a brewer or um what we're doing as a whole where we can take this yeast that we've had in our barrels and our bottles for years um and keep it going right you know that that to me feels more in line with what what i'm doing mm. well and and uh i'm sorry i'm kind of making sure i don't uh, ask more time of you than you've uh, allotted so i'm going to move on to barrels even though that, that's a that's a topic oh, well, I've, 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 the I've, one like, thing we should we should talk about bottle conditioning really quick. 
Well, just uh, be, be, so I'll, I'll, I'll add that to the list. Before we do, can we talk about um, uh, the, the kind of the fifth ingredient that you use are barrels, and 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 you were uh, well known for having uh, hollowed out a log and making a sati out of it. Um, can we talk about the the barrels and, and the wood yeah. aspect? That that is just, I mean, all of your beers touch wood at some point. Well, yeah. So like, yeah, yeah. Mash tons, mash tons are wood and our, our, our mash is overnight. We, we, the mash spends 12, 12 hours in, in these, uh, converted punchins. I have two of them. Um, you know, we got a copper, copper kettle, um, and then, uh, primary fermentation generally takes place either in barrels or in, um, our, our 10 ish barrel fooders, um, that are open topped. Um, so yeah, the, the, the beer, and then it goes in aging barrels and some beer goes into dry hop barrels. So yeah, it's like, it's wood and copper, um, up until, uh, packaging. So our bottling tanks, just so we have a, a place that we can pressurize, um, in order to push the beer into bottles or mm-hmm. they're stainless, but yeah, everything else is, is wood. Gotcha. And, and, and so, um, and have you made a sati since, uh, you know, years, years ago when. Oh, right. Well, yeah. I mean, I was fortunate enough to have, uh, Mika, uh, Leitinen from, um, uh, Finland come over. Uh, this was just a few years ago now. Um, he had just, he, he writes, uh, homebrewing books, um, and is a promoter of traditional farmhouse brewing from Scandinavia. And he got in touch with me and, um, wanted to make a traditional sati, um, with me and my brewery. And then, um, what was really great was because like I was telling you before, you know, our beers take about two years. Um, his goal, he came over here, um, and made, uh, we made a, um, a traditional, um, farmhouse beer with a little couple twists that, you know, to include our, our, our little apothecary thing, but we served it the following week at, uh, Belmont station, you know, it was like, yeah. you know, just to be able to, 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 to showcase this yeast and how amazing it was, you know, like, um, it was just, it was really fun. So that was, that was the last time I made a traditional, um, sati three years ago. And then, um, our Sahati, which was the beer that I made out of that log, um, was, uh, inspired by, uh, Scandinavian brewing, but it wasn't a traditional Sahti. It was, you know, a long-term barrel aged sour with spruce. And, um, I think the only real component that it shared with Sahti was the, uh, was the, the traditional louder ton, um, made of, you know, made out of a tree. Gotcha. Well, it, it made for a really, really cool story. And I remember there being a lot of buzz about it. Um, and, and I did get a chance to taste it, but that was forever ago. And, and so here I thought, oh, I've, I've actually tasted a sati before. Now, now my, now my, the dream is alive again. I need to find yeah, a proper sati. Yeah, you, you do. And, you know, we should make <laughs> one because they're, they're super fun. And, um, yeah, they're a really cool, um, a real, a real cool cultural element to beer. I mean, Amika brought over this, um, it was this toasted rye, um, that he wanted to use. He wanted to make sure it went to the beer. And he was telling me that he, you know, cause he homebrews and he has a lot of ingredients. And he's like, I didn't have any of this rye at home. And so I just stopped at the stu- supermarket on the way to the airport. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I mean, on the, you know, it looks like a, uh, like a flower, you know, like if you go to the store to buy a bag of flour, but it has a picture of a beer on it. Right. So that's like the homebrewing culture is such in Finland where you could walk into the supermarket and 
buy some of your homebrewing ingredients right off the shelf, which I just was like, that is so cool. Oh, that is so cool, man. We, we need to up our game here in the States. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and you wanted to touch on uh, your bottle conditioning as well, which is an important part of, of making sure your beers taste the way they do. Right. Right. Yeah. And it was another way that I could remove the industrialization of beer by not force carbonating. Um, and then also including, uh, 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 an ingredient that is unique to Oregon, which was raw wildflower honey. So like, you know, on, on one hand, um, we do get a lot of people saying, does that really, is that really noticeable? You know, it's, it ends up being about one to two tablespoons of honey per bottle for 750 mil bottle, you know, like rough equivalent there. Um, but we also will use fruit juices um, in season and stuff uh, as the bottle conditioning um, carbohydrate. And it is, you know, especially when you use, say, like a uh, uh, pear juice or uh, cherry juice or something, it's very apparent. And like um, the honey adds this, um, you know, there's, while it's raw honey, there's, um, it leaves this residual component. Um, and I think it's mainly a mouthfeel that, um, I know if we use dextrose, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be anywhere comparable, right? Like to make these, um, uh, tart beers to have a little bit of this residual mouthfeel, it really adds this balance and this creaminess to the bottle. Um, but yeah, the bottle conditioning is hugely important. We, we typically will, um, give about six months in the bottle before we think about, um, releasing it to market because of that raw honey and, and that maturation phase. Yeah. Interesting. And so this is, this, this is basically all the different ingredients you use to create these special unique beers that we've already talked about. They're, they're the, not your everyday beers. Um, but, uh, before we kind of start our closeout process, there's one question I really wanted to ask you is what is your approach on recipe development given all of this that we've already just talked about. I mean, all the, all the, you know, all the different ingredients that you use, they're not the typical ingredient that most brewers use. So how does that change how you put a recipe together? Well, um, I think it, you know, it's going to be dependent on whatever ingredient we're kind of focused on, but it, it typically boils down to how do we showcase um, you know, like, I guess if it's something in particular that we're excited about its flavor or its aroma, it's like, how do we showcase this one ingredient? Um, I was also kind of just thinking there's also more of a, the practical, you know, what's going to be better in the, uh, um, you know, for the beer in the brewery. Right. So there's, there's a couple different elements there. Well, um, and, to give you an example, um, a number of years ago, uh, we transitioned to bottle conditioning with champagne yeast, where um, up to that point, I'd been using our wild yeast uh, and our, you know, our homegrown stuff for everything. Um, we are continually running into problems with bottle conditioning, mm. um, which for being the size that we are, I mean, for anybody, it's just like to have this great product go into the bottle and then fail. Um and have it happen um, as often as it did was just not acceptable. Um, and so that was kind of a more practical decision where now, like, you know, the champagne yeast, it's, it's fairly neutral. Um, and granted it's kind of leaning on the industry a little bit, but for me, like the bigger picture was like, how do we get our products to the market in the best uh, possible way? Um, whereas say if we're going out and we're collecting manzanita flowers, um, the most important thing is to those into the beer at the very last possible moment to preserve all those oils. So 
when we do have that bottle open, you're getting this aroma of these manzanita flowers or the lilac flowers or whatever it is. Um, and then I guess, you know, like with Seth and his malt, um, we have developed recipes, um, you know, where we're using a hundred percent of one of his malts, you know, in, in, um, traditional, should I say tradi contemporary traditional brewing, a lot of times you will um, have this base malt, um, you know, the, the cheapest ingredient in your beer, and then you'll augment it with um, uh, darker versions, uh, higher color, um, higher impact malts, and, you know, blend them together. So you end up with like, you know, 5% of this, whatever, and 90% of your pale malt. Well, one thing I really like to do because Seth does such a good job with his malt is to use a lot of his malt. And some, some of our kids, like the one that we named after him, we call, we've got this beer, we call Earthbound Astronaut. It's his Instagram handle. Hmm. Um, it's his um, kind of his 10 level bond kind of mech, um, um, sorry, Munich ish, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. biscuit, biscuity mall. Right. Um, and so that mall, that beer is made with a hundred percent of this, uh, of this, you know, lightly toasted malt but you know in, in in that kind of volume you get this really unique uh biscuity character and this this crazy color that you just can't get any other way and so i think to to answer your question it's really going to be dependent on the ingredient but it's it's really fun to kind of angle and focus these projects on specific items when when you're excited about them well, I, I find that interesting. And before we actually started this interview, I think I accused you, uh, that's a strong word, but I accused you of being um, a, a, a professional high-end home brewer. And, and, so you're talking, <laughs> and so you're talking about solving problems with champagne yeast. I mean, shoot, that every home brewer's got to have a little packet of champagne yeast uh, kind of ready to go just in case you get a stuck ferment or something like that. And it's just like, and, and, and so all of this kind of makes sense, but you're able to take advantage of the um, unique ingredients that you have access to and, and create something just truly, truly special. Um, so kudos. Thank you. Um, but I've got a few closeout questions before we go. Um, uh, so we're going to kind of shift gears real quick. Um, sure. No, uh, basically. Uh, so we're going to take, you know, I call it my little magic mash paddle in, uh, Paul tomorrow, <laughs> you get to be the king of the beer world for a day. What's oh. the first thing you're going to change? Oh, these are questions you should have given me some time to think about. I would have written something up. I, well, that's um, exactly why I didn't. <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. Well, I think, I mean, that's a tough question because, you know, um, I think my um, my ability to wave a magic wand or this magic mash paddle would incorporate it, it it's it has to do with i think with the communication between um with breweries and the and customers right i think i think there's some um there were we're missing some opportunities to uh to deepen our relationship with each other and i think sometimes what happens is the money gets in the way and uh something that gets a little trendy gets a little action and then all the money goes to this thing. And then all of a sudden we get all this new interest because we've got, you know, we've got all this money behind these, um, this, uh, I mean, like for the, for example, that the, I mean, the hazy IPA craze <laughs> on one hand is like, I admire so much. It's very, it was originally, it was so punk rock. Like it just was like, um, you know, growing up in, uh, 
in the time I did with the beer culture and, you know, how important clear beer was for shelf stability and all these things, right? Yeah. And the brewing process and like, we got to minimize the sediment and all that. And to have a beer come out that just flipped that on its head, I just really applauded. And I thought it was just great because it's like, this is, this is so cool. Um, but what it's kind of turned into is, uh, it's unfortunate in a way, right? I, I mean, we, we have people who've gotten into the industry as a consumer who don't realize that there's really anything more than a West Coast IPA and a hazy IPA. Um, and they're basing their choices on um, how pretty the can is, you know? And I mean, mm -hmm. these are all elements that, you know, you see in the wine industry with their, you know, their, their challenges with how do you connect with consumers and how do you catch somebody's eye and all that. But I think, I think that communication between, um, and maybe it has to just do with like the removal of uh, the desire for these businesses to be so big and powerful. I, I mean, I don't really know, but I think my frustration lies in this missed opportunity that we have to um, really celebrate the culture that goes back. I mean, that's a part that's just so weird to think about, like when people are unearthing clay pots from, you know, 10,000 years ago. And it's like, oh, yeah, there's there's beer in this, yeah. you know, and, and, and sometimes when we look at our our current beer climate. It feels like we're uh, we're not capitalizing on a lot of the hard work the 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 '80s craft revolution was kind of laying the groundwork for, right? I mean, we we started with all this, um, you know, all these styles and all this interest in yeast strains and different ways to make beer, and it just feels so myopic right now. Um, but then again, you know, like uh, you, you, we have a place for for my brewery, and we have a place for for other very unique breweries doing their own thing. Um, we just don't hear about them as much. So maybe it's giving voice to the little person. Maybe that's what it would be. You know, I, I, I similarly, I give credit to. Um, the hazy. I, I love that you said it was in the in the beginning. It was punk rock. It kind of made me think of Green Day. In the beginning, they were punk rock before yeah. they went mainstream, and and, <laughs> nice. and, and, yeah. and it was. Uh, and and that's kind of what they are. But for me, the hazy IPAs are a great way to bring people into the beer drinking world. So then it's incumbent upon the rest of us to say, okay, you like that there's a whole lot more where that came from. And just let me show you. Um, it, it's kind of like, uh, you know, the, the matrix, you know, it's like, you know, take the red pill or the blue pill <laughs> and, and, and we'll show you, you know, pick the blue pill and we'll show you the truth. And, and here's what's down there. But, um, but hopefully with beers like yours and this podcast, we're trying to help people understand there's more to this. Um, but, uh, speaking of more to this, the next question I have for you is, is um, if we could send you out into a, an unreached part of the world to discover a new culture and, and you had the opportunity to create a beer and a food culture there, what beer, what kind of food would you bring with you to serve as a foundation for that? Okay. Um, maybe clarify that. So like, is this an existing culture that I'd be going into? Yeah, you, you basically get you get to start a beer and food culture where there is none. And so, but you can only bring one beer style, one kind of food to serve as the foundation of that. Got it. Okay. Well, um, I, I think no matter where I went, um, my interest would be in learning what their existing culture contains, right? Like this idea of going in and, and, um, just creating something from scratch isn't really that appealing to me. Um, 
because I feel like the things I get most excited about um, are are becoming aware of how how people are different and and, and how um, how cultures kind of develop through time. And I think um, the thing that came to my mind when you were saying that was I read this article um, a number of years ago on this uh, this banana beer that is made in a certain place in Africa where they take these bananas and they like it's kind of like with the grapes, right? They smash them with their feet and they cover them up and they let them ferment. And it makes this, you know, um, low alcohol, uh, uh, chugger beer. Um, and I was just fascinated because it was just like, that has similarities to, um, you know, some of what we revere to be the highest, uh, civilized beverage in the world. But, uh, you know, it's currently not, you know, it's, it's, currently it's it's not seen as such right it's like this back uh woods kind of old way of doing this very very traditional thing that's been around for a long time and i think um to get into something like that where um you've there's a place that's been doing this thing for so long and to be able to kind of like refine it and understand it um that's really what would excite me it's kind of like i mean i remember when um uh Oh, the brewery in the East Coast. Uh, they would do a ninety-minute IPA. Dogfish head. Uh, dogfish. When they um, when they did their chicha beer, right? And they yeah. had the guys in forklifts driving around chewing these things. <laughs> they, you know, like um, I think you know, there's there's for me, I think going in and and learning would be way more my style than going in and and uh, coming up with something that was supposed to replace something. All right. Cool. Um, then, uh, kind of the last hard question is how do you define good beer and why does it matter? Um, well, I define good beer by, um, really it's, it's all sensory, you know, it's, and that, that sensory is going to include that particular moment, right? Like I can have the same beer in two different environments, two different days, um, two different moods. And one day I might find it to be great. And the other day I like, no, this isn't doing it for me today. Um, so that's a big component for me. Um, but generally speaking, it's like, it's the, it's, it's the full, it's a full package, right? It's like what, what it looks like, um, the, uh, the way that it interacts with my palate. Um, you know, it's, I'm a big fan of, um, you know, Keller beer, like the, the traditional mm. uh, Czech version of, of Pilsner, you know, the unfiltered version of Pilsner. And when that thing is, is hitting right, like it seems to have all those different nuances um, that, uh, that I would need. And it, it's always amazing because it's like, it's in one sense, like the, the simplest um, way to kind of describe beer right it's like there's it's in some cases it's one hop and one malt and um and the yeast character and um but it, it creates a lot and so like i think when we're talking about our beers that's what i'm hoping for uh when you brought up earlier about the celebration aspect is that uh that our beer will help enhance this um the situation that uh that it's opened in and uh kind of hit hit all those right notes um and not to be a distraction but to kind of just integrate itself within the moment that um uh, that is currently being used i guess hmm. nice nice i like that um just the 
you know, you're incorporating that. I, I call it the internal terroir because you know I could I could drink one of your beers, but if I'm in the mood for you know a, a Coors banquet, then you know maybe I chose wrong, um, and so it's not <laughs> it's not going to taste right. But it kind of yep. depends. But it but it it's almost like um, the part of the experience is is my uh, participation in the experience, and uh, and because beer can only get you so far. Um, right. Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah. I yeah. think, yeah, I think sometimes, um, I appreciate how invested people are in evaluating beer, uh, but kind of to, to reflect again on that technical, um, little conversation we had about that word earlier. Um, my appreciation, like it's sometimes it's hard when, um, you might be hanging out with someone and all the focus is just on that beer, like all the pressure for that particular in interaction between you and this person. Um, it's placed on that beer and really um, kind of like what we're talking about. It's that the bigger picture is that it's two people, three people where we're, it's the, the social interaction that the beer is a part of that, uh, that is where that, that connection is for me. You know, once we start just turning and looking at the beer and saying, you know, well, you, you better, uh, you better show up, you know, you're, you're, it's all on you right now. You know, I think that's, that's a little far-fetched because when you look at, um, how, how these alcoholic drinks have served us as humans, it's really to bring us together and to just be part of these celebrations. Yeah. Perfect. Um, couple, couple quick little questions. Uh, anyone, if anyone wants to learn more about uh, what you do or try and find some of your beer, where can they go? Uh, well, our website and our blog, uh, you can get to our blog through our website, which goes back years and kind of gives a lot of my thought process and experiences. Um, the website will have, I'm, I'm kind of, my goal is to get some more information about, um, who we are and, and what we're doing. I mean, we get some pictures and some stuff on there, but um, those are the, I mean, if you're looking to actually get your hands on our beer, Tavor occasionally gets a drop and can mail order it. Um, otherwise our tasting room and we, you know, like we were talking about earlier, um, we do work with select bottle shops around the world. Um, so you can always reach us through the website. And if you're someplace, we can try and figure out a way for you to, to get your hands on our beer that way. Great. And last thing, do you have any uh, final words of wisdom or any calls to action for anyone listening? Um, I think, you know, it's just these times right now. I think it's it's hard to uh, uh, sometimes see a way to connect with people. And I think just looking for, for any opportunity to, to connect with people in, in a positive way is, uh, is, is about all I can say. It's just um, I uh, – I think beer is a really good platform for bringing people together. And, uh, I like looking for those kind of opportunities. I absolutely agree. And thank you so much for the beer that you produce. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for what you stand for as far as your brewery is concerned as well. But, um, but mostly thank you for coming on the podcast and kind of sharing your story with us and in your approach with, uh, kind of bringing all of these components together. Well, thanks, Jeremy. I really appreciate your interest and uh, you keep doing what you're doing too, because uh, together, you know, like we're, uh, we're doing something. So I appreciate it. Well, as my British ancestors used to say, rock and roll. <laughs> right on. All right, man. Well, take care, Jeremy. All right. You too. There are beers and then there are beers. The difference can be subtle, but while the former comes from factories filled with the latest tech and production methods, the latter is made by hand that has worked harmoniously with all the ingredients, with the farmers, and the land. 
Which do you prefer? In the next episode, we talk to a winemaker and a leading brewer about their innovative flavor description system that is starting to take shape. Good Beer Matters is a show about great beer, great friends, and the experiences we create together. But it's also about better beer education so you can level up your game. So if you're a beer and food professional or even a beer enthusiast, then please subscribe to Good Beer Matters podcast and go to goodbeermatters.net for more resources and next steps. After that, grab a beer, hang out with friends, and let the world open up. Thank you for listening. Cheers. Cheers.